there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James, and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. I'd like to talk to you about ways and means. What's the difference between self-awareness and self-observation? Yeah, that's a question, and I'm expecting some kind of an answer. And, of course, you can't really answer it because you don't know the answer. Because when we get to these finer, more subtle points about the work, we're like, have you ever seen those, have you ever seen those, um, prison things with people in prison they don't have anything else to do so they get like a, a pin or a needle and then take a grain of rice and then they use that pin or that needle to carve it and they carve it into like a mosque or an elephant or something or an alligator or something really bizarre and of course the only way to see it is under a microscope or under very strong glasses and you look at it and you think no way no way and then they'll take under the microscope and they'll take the head of the pin that they use to carve it with. And it looks like a baseball bat. It looks like the end of a baseball bat compared to the grain of rice. And you think, there's no way. How could they possibly do that? Well, this is how we are with the work. Our minds are, are very fine, delicate instruments. But because the formatory apparatus has taken over the intellectual center, it's just this big, fat log that instead of being able to make a tiny little mark that's, you know, to make a fine definition, it can't. It just kind of bludgeons everything. So we don't really think. What we do is we bludgeon. And we call that thinking. But we take ideas and we bludgeon them with our minds. And then we wonder why no one understands us. And we wonder why we don't understand the ideas. And the reason is because our minds instead of being fine instruments that we can direct and say, okay, I'll put it here. Like a, a fencer, someone who fences may take a sword, the point of a sword, and put it right there, right on that spot, exactly where he wants it to be. But then you look at those old swords that the knights used when they rode around on horses and, and, and wore armor, and the, the sword weighed pounds. And it was just like, you would bludgeon something. You never really cut anything. You would just bludgeon it. You would knock it down. And they weren't very sharp. So, for example, during the Crusades, the swords that the Saracens used were incredible. They were fine blades, you know, Damascus steel rolled and pounded and rolled and pounded and heated and rolled and pounded. Things that we still hardly understand. But we're beginning to understand the whole metallurgy of it. But And the, and the Crusaders' swords were these big, honky, bust the door down, chop down trees, like things like that. And it's the difference, it's the difference between the, the Eastern, the Middle Eastern mind and the Western mind. The Middle Eastern mind understood things in a finer way. This is why algebra and zero and the decimal point, and, you know, all this came from there and not from us. What came from us is, bang, crush, smash, you know, uh, and so this is the way our minds are. They're, they're not really able to, to 
to grasp finer details, the finer things like a grain of rice that's been carved into a mosque or whatever. So when I think about that, I think, well, okay, so tell me, what's the difference between self-awareness and self-observation? We go, oh, oh, what do you mean? And, of course, what I mean is there is a difference. It's a very subtle difference, but it's a difference that it's necessary for us to learn how to taste. See, and this is why the word taste is used so much in the work, because we need to, because taste is subtle, smell is subtle. You can taste things. For example, let's let's say you have a splinter in your finger. I've used this example before, and you should remember it, but of course you won't. But if you have a splinter in your finger, and you take your other finger, and you try to find it, you can't really find it. You can make it hurt, maybe, but you can't really find it. But if you take your tongue and go across it, your tongue is thousands of times more sensitive, and it'll find it instantly. It'll seem like a tree sticking out of your finger. It's like, oh, well, who could miss that? But you take your other finger and try and find it, and you can't. So... <clears throat> And we think when we, we go around in the world and we touch everything with our fingers when we should be touching everything with our tongues. Now, of course, that doesn't work in the winter because if you stick your tongue to something metal, we all know it sticks there and then you're in big trouble. So don't do that. Don't try this at home. All right. One, one, one is one. So the difference between self-awareness and self-observation is that one is the way and the other is the means. They need to be practiced together in order to avoid problems. So what does that mean? It means that the work is dangerous. That's what it means. It means that this work is dangerous. If it's applied improperly, it's like a gun or it's like a knife. If you're a cook and you cook in the kitchen and you're a professional, a professional spends a lot of time just learning how to hold a knife. You can always tell a professional because they don't hold the knife by the handle. They hold the knife by the handle and the blade. So they'll have their thumb and finger, forefinger, on the blade. And, they'll, and then the rest of the, the handle will be in their hand. And they use that because it gives them greater control and a, be, a better feel for that. And then you have to learn how to cut or else you end up leaving your fingers in the soup, which is not always a good idea, especially if you're a vegetarian like I am. The last thing I want in the soup is the chef's fingers. So... They, they'll pull their fingers under and hold the food with their knuckles and then hold the knife by the blade and the handle and not chop like we do, but slice because a knife is made to slice. You draw it across the food instead of hammering down the, the, the way that Western knives and the way that Eastern knives cut are very different. So Eastern knife can be very thin because it's used, it's pulled across the food and it slices it. But a Westerner will go for something heavier so he can just mash it, you know, mash the food down, which of course doesn't really, we don't understand all this. A chef would understand all this because he knows that sliced food, cut food, is more delicious than mashed food and crushed food. But we don't know that. We say, well, food is food. You cut it. That's all. Who cares? Now eat it. You know, cook it and eat it. And this is the way we think about the work. And we need to really understand that this is problematic and it could cause us great difficulties in the work. It will stunt your growth. It will stop your forward motion in the work. So this is why I bring up ways and means. Few people realize the high voltage power that esoteric teachings transmit and what effect that power can have on us. 
That kind of power can crystallize us in a lower state. We'll talk more about that later. It is possible. We'll talk more about that later. So what do I do? I talk about it now, of course. It's possible to crystallize in a lower state. You don't want to do that. Crystallization is when you, when you, if, if, if you take minerals, salts, and things like that, and that they that they'll take or metals or whatever that they'll take them in little balls or little flakes, and they put them in something, and then they apply heat to it, and it'll all melt together, come together, and then if you take the heat away, it, as it cools, it crystallizes, it becomes one. And so this is what happens with us. We can crystallize in a lower state. And like I said, more on that later. We're busy looking for knowledge of transformation, not seeing how few people attain that. They don't attain anything approaching proper transformation. I was talking to someone the other day, and he said that someone had told him, well, the reason that in in the society, in the Gurdjieff society, they're not people who are teaching this directly is because there aren't people who really understand it enough so that they can present it in a way that makes sense. And this is exactly my point. We have people who are looking for the knowledge of transformation, but they're not really attaining anything that approaches proper transformation. You see, the idea of the knowledge is not to transform. The idea of the knowledge is to set you up so that you can practice what needs to be practiced, and then the transformation will take place in the practice, not in the gaining of the knowledge, or the toying with the knowledge, or the categorizing of the knowledge, or the transmission of the knowledge, or the proper transmission of the knowledge. So many people have so much energy and attention on the form of how it's said. Well, you didn't say it right. Well, you haven't explained it properly. Well, you need a diagram. Well, should you have a whiteboard up there? Well, we should have this. We should have that. Well, if we had an overhead projector and you could see it up there, then I could understand it. No, you don't get understanding from drilling it into your head. You don't get, if you take, if you take a potato and you want it inside of you, you don't take the potato and take a brick and then hammer it on your head. The best way to do it is to cook the potato, put it in your mouth, and eat it. But this is pretty much what we do. We take things and we just hammer them on our heads, like somehow we're going to get it in there by force. So this is the whole idea I'm talking about with the Western mind, how we chop or bang or bludgeon instead of use this fine instrument that the mind can be if we use it properly. It can be a very fine instrument that can handle these delicate ideas because it's a very delicate instrument like a seismograph that can pick up something miles and miles away, a very slight vibration miles and miles away, and it can register that. Our minds are the same way, potentially, potentially. Right now, they're not that way. Right now, they're like caveman minds. You know, we're like these thick-browed things, you know, caveman, yes, ugh, give me this. And the work really requires something more refined. And so the work must refine us because we do not come to the work refined. So these ideas must be, these ideas must refine us. So this is why it's important to know there is a difference between self-awareness and self-observation. Of course, most people say, well, of course there's a difference between self-awareness and self-observation. They're different words. But that's as far as it goes. But what does that mean? 
Well, it means they're different. It means one is self-observation and one is self-awareness. Anyone who, whenever you ask someone what they mean by something and they repeat what they say, you can be pretty certain they don't know what they mean. You can be pretty certain they're faking it. Now, someone who does know what they mean will be able to sit and explain it to you until you fall asleep. Okay, I got it. You can stop now. Oh, no, but let me tell you another way to look at this. <coughs> so, this is, what, this is what we're really talking about. There's this power that esoteric teachings transmit, and it has the power, this high-voltage power, that can crystallize because of the heat involved with it. Most people, unfortunately, as I've said before, get inoculated by the work needle without ever catching the disease that will kill them so that they can get the rebirth at which all esotericism aims. What is the thing that we really want to do? We really want to save our lives. If you, if I say to you, for example, well, uh, Craig, blah, 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 you'll say, well, well, that's, that's, no. Our first response, our first response is an objection, a defense. Really, what we mean is, no, I'm not wrong. I don't need to change. I'm right. But this is counterproductive because you're here because you know you want to change. But your mind, this bludgeoning instrument, will not allow that. It's like, no, you can't come in this door. No, this door is barred. No, you can't come in this door. And so, but the mind needs to be refined and cut like a key so that when you slip the key in the lock, it clicks, the tumblers click, and you turn it, and, and everything works. Right now, the way we open doors is kick them down. And we need to allow these work ideas to begin to refine us, to carve us like a grain of rice, so that instead of being this thing, we turn into something else. And that's what this transformation is like. And so this is what we're after. Self-awareness is associated with the third state of consciousness. It's also called self-remembering. So we know that the third state of consciousness is different than the second state of consciousness. The first state of consciousness, according to this work, is asleep on the bed. Your moving center is not active, mostly. And so you're asleep on the bed. The second state of consciousness is when the moving center becomes active, you roll yourself over and you put your feet out of bed and you stand up and you start to walk around and do the things that we all do. What are the things you do? You put the coffee on, you brush your teeth, you get a shower, you brush your hair, whatever you do. You put, get your clothes. Whatever it is you do, whatever it is that you mechanically do, that's the second state of consciousness when it just starts to run mechanically. The machine just starts moving. So we call that being awake. What the work calls that is waking sleep, the second state of consciousness. The third state of consciousness, the only the, the, the state of consciousness where higher influences can touch us, reach us, and help us and begin to pull us up, the third state of consciousness is the one that we aim at. Because we think we have the third state of consciousness, we don't do anything to get it. Because we think we possess it already, because we imagine that we possess the third state of consciousness, we don't do anything to get it. Someone tells you you're asleep, you're offended. We don't like that. I'm not asleep. I'm tired, but I'm not asleep. So, this is what we're talking about. Self-awareness is associated with the third state of consciousness, called also self-remembering. There are different degrees of self-remembering. People think, oh, well, I remembered myself. 
Well, what does that mean? Which self did you remember? Well, me, myself. But which self is that? Which I is that? Well, me, this I. So in other words, you remembered imaginary I. No, no, I remembered myself. I'm sure of it. Hmm. And we, so we don't really understand because we feel it with our fingers, but we don't touch it with our tongue. We can't really, we haven't been able to taste the differences, the subtle differences. And this is what this work aims at for us in order to get us, to help us to move into these states, to help us to become comfortable in these states. It knows that there are certain things that we must develop. There are certain things that have to be developed. A good cook, a good chef, is one who knows the tastes in his food. And he knows what it's going to take to balance something. He knows what it's going to take to pop something. He's an artist. Just like an artist who paints on a palette, this person is doing it with food, with taste, with colors, with smells, and with textures. And so it's it's more like that. The work has to be more like that for us. You, you, if you're going to be a carpenter with the, with the work, you have to be a finished carpenter. You can't be a rough carpenter who just saws it, oh, close enough. You know, can't see it from my kitchen window and just hammers the nails in. Uh, it, it, it's, it's more joinery. The work is more joinery. It's a, it's, a, it's a finer art. And so this is what has to happen. But people in our culture have left this. It's like when I opened the window today, I had to laugh. There's a gap of a, perhaps a half an inch in the window. So when the window is fully closed, there's a half inch gap. And I said, where is, you know, what happened to old world craftsmanship? You know, where, where's that? And it's like, well, it'll do. You know, it'll do. It closes and it, you can turn the handle, it locks. Nobody can get in from outside. It'll do. You could, you could almost walk in through the crack in it. What do you mean nobody can get in from outside? Oh, no, you're silly. Nobody could get in from outside. Of course, no one could get in from outside without a crowbar. And But there it is. There's the place to put it. You know, we've got the place ready-made to put it. This half-inch gap in the window it just doesn't fit properly. If that was on your car, well, you may or may not notice, depending you know, on what kind of a person you are, depending on how conscious you are of things like that. Now, someone who is not so conscious about things like that will defend himself and say, instead of saying, well, I'm, I'm unconscious about things like that, he'll say, oh, things like that don't matter to me. I'm not identified with physical objects. So what we're looking at is this whole idea of how we defend ourselves against the very thing that we really want. We want to be transformed, and yet we find that our minds are so thick and so slow and so heavy that they fight the transformation process. They don't go along with it. So the work is to first change the mind, metanoia. We have to first change our minds. If we don't do that, nothing's going to happen with this work. It'll all just fall into the intellectual center. It'll stay there. It'll never dribble down to the emotional center where it belongs and where it really does the work. So if you're emotionally blocked or emotionally constipated, then what has to happen is somehow you've got to get a shock to the emotional center that can start to clean it, that can start to break up the crystallized parts because it's crystallized. What it is, it's, it's, it's gotten, or it's begun a crystallization process, crystallized in negative emotions or crystallized in, crystallized in negative emotions, crystallized in self-emotions and negative emotions. And that has to be broken up a little. And we would think, oh, perfect, Westerners, we know just how to do that. 
take a big club and hit it. But it doesn't work that way because you take a big club and hit somebody and they're gone. They, they, they won't stay and work. They'll leave. So you have to finesse it. You have to work at it with little taps, a little tap here and a little tap there. Remember the story about the, the air conditioning uh, that, that broke and uh, it was big church. The air conditioner broke and it was really hot. It was down south and uh, the air conditioner broke and it was in the summer and it was sweltering and people don't come to church if there's no air conditioning there. So they quick call the air conditioner. Well, of course, it's a Sunday and he's not working. So it's a special thing. He comes out and he goes up into the, in the, 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 the technician goes with him up into the, to the place where the air conditioner is and he looks around and he checks this and he checks that. He goes to his bag and he opens it up. He takes out this little hammer about this big, about five inches, with a five-inch handle, this little hammer that, you know, almost like a jeweler's hammer. You know, you look at that, what's he, what's an air conditioning guy doing with this hammer? And he goes up to the air conditioner, he goes, bink, and he just taps it. And the air conditioner goes, comes on, and works. And he gives the bill, and it's like $400. He goes, $400? $400, all you did was take that little hammer and tap it. He says, it's not the tap, it's knowing where to tap. This is what the work is like. This whole idea that all you did was this. I had a coffee the other day with someone. It was really comical. I had this little macchiato and this other person had this big cafe americano, which is a big cup of coffee, like the Americans drink. And the the one I had was this little dinky cup of espresso with a little dollop of foam milk on it, a mark of foam milk on the top of it. It was a little dinky thing. And she said to me, well, you'll be done with that. This is ridiculous. You pay the same price and you'll be done with that in minutes. But I'll have mine. I'll be drinking mine for for 15 minutes. Long past yours. When yours is gone, I'll still be drinking mine. And it's like, yeah, but who would want to? You know, it's like, that's not the purpose. You know, who would want to? It's this whole idea of quantity over quality, that more is better. Well, I paid this much money, but I got this big thing. You paid the same amount of money, but you only got that little thing. And how come you don't think that way when it comes to a diamond? Well, I don't think little diamonds are good, right? So we don't think that way. Again, it's the same thing. We think quantity. So a big diamond is obviously better than a little diamond. But a big diamond that's flawed and smoky and nasty color and won't cut properly, isn't cut properly, is not worth anything near what a tinier diamond that's perfect, flawless, with a good color, and is properly cut, is worth. So it's not a matter of quantity, it's a matter of quality. This work has to be looked at in that way. If you don't look at it in that way, you lose what it's about. You lose the edge. Now, this can be confusing, and it should be, since we need to practice this to understand it properly. It better be confusing to you intellectually. If you understand this intellectually, you have quit too soon. You must get to the point where you're willing to practice it, put it to work. Self-observation associated with the third state of consciousness, also called self-remembering. It's like, yeah, 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 I got that. 
This is how we do it. Yeah, 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 I got that. You're saying the same thing you said last week. Yes, I'm saying the same thing I said last week. But do you understand it this week? I understood it last week. So in other words, your answer is no. I don't understand it better this week. Why you don't understand it better this week is because you haven't practiced it. You didn't practice it last week. If you had practiced it all this week, you would understand it better now when I said it. Well, then you would say, oh, I've got it now because I practiced all this week and now I understand it. No, you practiced all this week and now you understand it better, but you don't understand it. This whole thing is a process. In our ordinary state, we're hypnotized by life's repeating events, embroiled in daily affairs. So something happens and it grabs us and we're attached to it and it pulls us around and just drags us around and it's liable to drag us around for the whole day. There are people who drag you around an event that happens to them on the way to work one morning and it happens to them every morning. Every morning, if it doesn't happen, they get to that same spot and they go, oh, they get embroiled again. They get upset again. It's still there because they haven't stopped identifying with whatever it is. The practice of the work is to stop identifying. Sooner or later, you've got to get around to actually practicing non-identification. You can't just keep talking about it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I practice non-identification all the time. All the things that don't matter to me, I don't identify with. That's not really the point. The point is to practice non-identification with all the things that do matter to you. Well, I don't really care about material things. Fine. Then practice non-identification with the things that you do care about. That's where to work. People who don't remember themselves enjoy negative emotions. Do you enjoy negative emotions? It's because you don't remember yourself. And this is something that's difficult for us to admit. We don't like to admit, well, yes, I enjoy negative emotions. They're wonderful. Now, someone who's not in the work will admit it all the time. Damn right. Yeah. Negative emotions. <laughs> yeah. They feel good. It makes me feel alive. I feel more alive. I feel like I'm in control if I'm, if I'm angry. When I get angry, I really take control. When I get angry, I get sharp and clear. I know what to do, and I do it. When I get angry, people listen. It works. So they like negative emotions. They enjoy negative emotions. It gives them something that they want. You don't find very many people who are willing to admit, yes, I enjoy worrying. But there are people who enjoy worrying. If they don't have something to worry about, they're most worried when they don't have anything to worry about. Because they don't have anything to worry about, they need to worry about finding something to worry about. Because... If they don't have something to worry about, something worse is going to come up to worry about. So there's something to worry about. Identification, self-pity, and other lower states. All of these things are indicative of people who do not remember themselves. All of these things are indicative of us. Self-awareness, self-remembering, both of those things are above us and must be reached through specific efforts. Work effort aims at attaining the third state of consciousness. The purpose for this work is to attain the third state of consciousness, to be able to move into the third state of consciousness, to be able to basically climb into it. But you see, for us, it's mountain climbing. For us, it's not just climbing a set of stairs. For us, it's effort, specific effort that must be made. If you've ever done anything approaching mountain climbing, you know that there are certain tools that have to be used. There are certain ropes that have to be used. There are certain 
buckles and clips and things that they hammer into these crevices and that have to be used in mountain There are things for rocks. There are things for ice. There are things for snow. And all these different things that they hammer in to be able to hold so that you can hook a rope and the guy coming up behind you can use that to get up. So the work is like that. It takes specific efforts, specific tools. Not anyone can go to Mount Everest and climb it. Takes a tremendous amount of knowledge, takes a tremendous amount of training, takes a tremendous amount of money, and so people don't do it. Takes a tremendous support team to be able to establish a base camp so that someone can go up. You have to know about the weather. There's so many things you have to know. It takes not no one person can't do it. It takes a team. It takes a whole team of people and a slew of knowledge to do it. This work is the same way. One person can't do it. It's something that has to be done by a group of people, but the group can't be too big. If the group is too big, it doesn't work. If the group is too small, it's better to have a group that's too small than a group that's too big. A group that's too small can always grow. A group that's too big has already grown too much, so it's already over the limit. It's already not a workable situation. It's already gone off. It's already missed the mark. Now, I'm sure people in big groups won't agree with that. I don't really care what they agree with. This isn't about them. This is about what I have noticed and what I have experienced and what I'm sharing with you according to my understanding. If someone has greater understanding and better understanding, wonderful. Then I'm willing to listen to it. But it's not my experience that larger groups work as well as smaller groups. My understanding is that individuals working with each other get better progress in the same way that when I wanted to learn to play classic guitar, the first thing I did is I went to the local community college and I took a guitar class, classic guitar class on reading guitar music and I thought, okay, well, I'll start there and then I'll do that. And so I did. And one of the first things the teacher said is, this is a good way to learn. If you really want to play classic guitar, if you really want to learn, get a teacher because one-on-one is the best way. I already knew that. And so I said, well, okay, well, you, you, you got a teacher. And he said, yes, I had a teacher. And I learned when all the rest of them dropped off, and all the rest of the class dropped off, I dropped out of the class because in two weeks I had learned more than they were going to learn in months because I had a teacher who worked one-on-one with me. It still works. It's classic, and it still works. So the more people, everybody knows, the more people you have in a class, the less attention the teacher is going to be able to give to each individual student, the less they're going to learn. The fewer people in the class, the more attention and time the teacher is going to give to the individuals, and the more they're going to learn, the quicker they're going to learn, and the better quality of their education. This is why we have private schools and people are willing to pay so much money to have their children in smaller classes. Because that works. Yet, when it comes to work groups or churches or things like that, it's all about, well, how many people are in your group? Well, how big is it? No one ever asks, well, what are they learning? How many people are transforming? Well, there are only two people transforming. Only two people? Yes, only two people are transforming. How many people are transforming in your group? Hundreds. Okay, we're talking about different things then. We're not talking... When you say transformation, this is the confusion of tongues. This is babble. We're not talking about the same thing. I'm not talking about how many people show up and sit there and play work. I'm talking about how many people's lives are actually changing. Well, how many people listen to your podcast? I don't care. 
I don't care. Well, there happened to be 10,000 downloads, over 10,000 downloads in the past 30 days. Okay, well, that's a lot. That's a lot. No, I don't look at it that way. I look at it like how many people are changing? How many people are actually transforming? How many people are actually allowing this work to enter into them and they're willing to do something radically different than what they normally do? How many people are getting out of their ordinary second state of consciousness into the third state of consciousness? Well, two or three, then that's great. Two or three out of 10,000, my perspective, is a lot. That's a lot. So that'll give you an idea of the standard that I'm looking at. That's the standard that I get from the work. That's not the standard that I get from people. That's the standard that the work gives. Gurdjieff was very clear about this. This is not something everyone can do. This is not for everybody. It can't happen. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, well, that's a contradiction. Gurdjieff said this, but he also said that. And I said, well, I know it looks like a contradiction, but it's not really, because Gurdjieff was looking at something from two different perspectives. And so when he was talking about it from this perspective, he said this. When he was talking about it from this perspective, he said that. They appear to be contradictory, but if you bring them together and you understand they're not contradictory at all, you see that they are two sides of the same thing. Self-awareness, self-remembering, as I said, are above us and have to be reached in a specific way. We resent this. We don't like to be told that. We don't mind being told you have to have this or that to climb a mountain. We don't mind being told that you have to have this or that to enter this race. So if you want to race a car, you have to have certain, you have to meet certain requirements to get in, get on the track and race, because otherwise you're a detriment to everyone else on the track. Your car won't do this, your car won't do that, so you just get in the way, and it's dangerous. This is the same thing with the work. It becomes dangerous, too, if you're not properly equipped. You have to be properly equipped. And part of that is getting these ideas so that we can taste them instead of bludgeon them. The population of the Earth has fallen to the second state of consciousness. And the population of the Earth... We're imagining that we're awake. You go out on the street today and you, where there are crowds of people, and you were to play man in the street with a microphone and a camera and go up to people and ask, are you awake? They would say, of course I'm awake. And if you insisted that they were not awake, you would have, you would have problems. People would not accept that. And people would not accept that because they are absolutely convinced that this illusion of this, this illusion of the second state of consciousness is being awake. You can't... Somebody asked me the other day, well, how do you know when you're asleep? I said, I don't. The only time I ever know I'm asleep is when I wake up. The moment I begin to wake up, I go, oh, I was asleep. And then when I go to sleep again, I still think I'm awake. The only time that I realize that I wasn't awake is when I wake up again. Now... That doesn't look so good. And that's, you know, it's like, but, but you're supposed to be awake all the time. No, I'm not supposed to be awake all the time. That's what you made up. That's your assumption. I'm like you. I'm trying to understand these ideas. I'm trying to apply these ideas. And I'm sharing with you what I've found. But I have never said, well, I'm fully awake. I'm man number seven. I've never said that. And you'll never hear that from me. Even if I were, you wouldn't hear that from me. I would lie. I would lie because... I don't want to have my time ended before 
it's supposed to end. In other words, I don't want you to kill me. Because all you have to do is start being man number seven and everybody wants to kill you. It's like, you can't have that around. Look at man number seven. What happens to man number seven? He takes a tremendous amount of abuse, of abuse on this planet. And they finally end up nailing him to a cross or burning him at the stake or chopping his head off or doing something else. Why? Because he's threatening. Well, what is he threatening? He's threatening this second state of consciousness. And how is he threatening it? By being in the third state of consciousness and by showing the second state of consciousness for what it is. And what happens then? In the second state of consciousness, we're negative and violent. And so we attack what we don't understand. Since I don't want that, even if I were man number seven, I would never admit it. I would never tell man numbers one, two, and three. Oh, yes, I'm man number seven. That's a sure sure way to get your head cut off or a sure way to get crucified or burned at the stake. Forget that. I'm not interested in that. There are much more pleasant ways to die. That's not something that I really like to do. Although, if it comes around, I'm sure I could enjoy it. Esoteric teachings all agree that we're fast asleep. Wars and other acts of violence bear witness to this fact, but we don't think so. Why is that? Well, because we justify wars and other acts of violence. That's why. We justify it. We say, but but this war had to be. But these people are wrong. We had to straighten this up. We had to stop this injustice. We had to do this. We had to do I see. So you have to shed all this human blood. You have to kill all these people because you're fixing things. Yes, I'm fixing things. So you're breaking all this stuff to fix things. Yes, that's what I'm... Yes, well, you know, you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. So that's our, that's our logic, which is what I call Tigger logic. As in Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, Tigger logic. So anyway... Help from above only reaches down as far as the third state of consciousness. Our confusion is not knowing that it comes from within us. We have forgotten how to listen. We have forgotten how to listen to what is inside of us. The higher centers are inside of us. We say it's higher, it's above us, it's outside of us, and it is. But above us means inside of us. Higher means in in means higher in this work. The two are interchangeable, and we have to understand it that way. But we have forgotten how to listen to the inner voice. We've forgotten to, how to listen to something higher because all of our attention has been pulled out through the five senses and glued to the world. So we hear everything in the world. We hear the world just fine, but we don't hear the higher centers that are constantly broadcasting this message to us, a fine message, so fine that we need a microscope and to, to be able to see it, like the little grain of rice that's been carved into a mosque. We need a microscope to be able to see that properly. <coughs> the centers in which we live are the intellectual, emotional, moving, instinctive, and s- sex centers. There are higher centers in us but they only connect with the third state of consciousness. If you don't reach the third state of consciousness, you stay connected with the centers that are only reached in the second state of consciousness. Well, then that means that if you're in the third state of consciousness, then the intellectual, emotional, moving, instinctive, and sex centers don't have anything to do. No. It means that you are in touch with them and it's not mutually exclusive. It's not this or that. It's this and that. This is another way that's difficult for us to think. 
because it's not formatory thinking. Formatory thinking is either or, this or that, light or dark, up or down, hot or cold, black or white. Whereas this other way of thinking, this finer way of thinking, says, no, it's not this or that, it's this and that. It sees the wholeness of it. It sees the integrity of the universe. It sees the underlying unification of it because it understands. Waking from the illusion that we're already fully awake is our greatest task and is done through self-observation. It's the only way that we can be convinced that we're not conscious of what we say and do. People are not going to be convinced that they're not conscious of what they say and do until they see it themselves. When you see for yourself that you've said something or done something completely unconsciously, when you see it and you can't deny it, then you either go unconscious, go even you go even more unconscious, you divert your attention to something else, or you finally admit it. You say, okay, I was unconscious then, but I'm not unconscious now. I was asleep then, but I'm awake now. Being in a constant state of identification ensures no permanent, proper, inner feeling of ourselves so that we react to life's events mechanically. We react to life's events mechanically when we have no proper inner feeling of ourselves. Who are you? Well, I'm so-and-so. Most people will tell you their name. That's not who you are. Who are you? You're not a name. They'll tell you, well, I'm this person standing here in front of you. You're not a body. Whoa, what are you talking about? This sounds like some hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo. This is double talk. You're not ready to understand why are you not ready to understand? Because you already know it all. If you already know it all, you're a full cup. If you're a full cup, nothing else can be put into it. So I pass right by people like that. Okay, thank you, bye. Well, the other day we were walking down the street and there were these people standing there and I smiled and said, hello. And they just glared at me. And I said, goodbye. Kept walking. Said, hello, goodbye. That was all. It was like, look, you have a choice. You have a choice here. You can be a mechanical street machine. Ugh. I don't know you. You can't talk to me. Why are you smiling at me? You, you, you can do that mechanically. Or you can let something else in. You can let new meaning in. You can let a fresh impression in and take it differently and say, Oh, hello. People. Some people can do that. Some people can't. Most people do either one mechanically. We may as well have our eyes glued shut since they are glued on changing events through identification. We may as well take super glue and use it for eyeliner. It, it, it's just as effective. Once we are identified with something, we're blind. We're stuck on that. We'll never see anything else. It's like having a full cup. That's it. It's over. We learn about levels by trying to rise to a higher level of consciousness. We're looking for another level of ourselves in ourselves. It's not something outside of you you're looking for. It's not like, I'm going to move into this. You're already there. All you have to do is turn the lights on. That's the job here. The job is to find the light switch and turn the lights on. Then the real work begins. As soon as you turn the lights on, the light stabs your eyes that have been grown accustomed to the darkness, confronts you with all of your illusions and contradictions, and you have to turn the lights back off. That's enough of that. So we turn the lights off. 
So we must gradually and somehow install dimmer switches, you know, and bring the lights up slowly so it's not too uncomfortable for us, so that our heads don't ache too much, so that our eyes don't hurt too much. The work does much of this for us. We only can understand what we need to understand. We only get what we need to get. The work isn't about frying us. The work isn't about delivering this high-voltage power to us and crystallizing us in the wrong state. The work is about slowly, gradually drawing us upward, inward. The result will be a more conscious behavior through self-observation. See how they work together? Self-awareness, self-observation. Through self-observation, you become more self-aware. They are very closely related. Not quite the same, but inseparable. Gradually, we become more conscious of our ordinary self, the one that we've taken for granted suddenly starts to become visible to us, where when we were taking it for granted, it was invisible to us. There was no way we could see it. There was no way we could see it any more than you can pick up the chair that you're sitting on. You've got to get off the chair and pick it up. You can pick up the chair easily, not when you're sitting on it. Well, I can so. Watch this. And you hold the chair to your bottom and then you stand up. But that's not what I'm talking about, is it? I'm talking about picking up the chair while you're in it. And you can't do that. And so this is the same thing. While you're identified, you are taking, you cannot see your ordinary self. You're taking it for granted. That's what that means, taking it for granted. It means it has become invisible to you. When you are invisible to yourself, you have taken yourself for granted. You need to understand these things because these are the very things that during the day, when you find that you're invisible to yourself, you can then say, wait, I'm taking myself for granted. What does that mean? It means that you're identified with yourself. It means that you think you are that self. You think you are that. And if you think you're that then you have forgotten something. You've forgotten to remember yourself. You've forgotten that is not I. Practicing self-awareness can be done without observing yourself. This happens when we don't remember ourselves. It's wrong and it's problematic. If you don't remember yourself while you're observing yourself, you won't know what you're like. The object of self-observation is to find out what you're like to be able to see what you're like, not to be able to paint new pictures of yourself of what you'd like to be like, not to be able to convince yourself and other people that you're really okay. The object of self-observation is to find out what you're really like. You're not going to do that if you can't remember why you're observing yourself. Because what you'll end up doing is observing yourself and breaking your arm, patting yourself on the back at how well you've observed yourself and for how long. <laughs> That's right, I observed myself all day. What did you observe? Well, I observed that I'm quite a nice fellow. Yes, I'm sure you did. I observed that I'm really rather attractive. I observed that people like me. I observed that I do this very well. That's wonderful. What do you like? Well, I'm a wonderful person. We, we got the wrong we got the wrong work here. See, that's the, that's the wrong work is going on at that point. Maurice Nicole said, oh, I've been corrected by this. Morris Nickel. Morris Nickel said, if you, he said, a flash of high voltage lightning from higher centers will crystallize you into what you are. Trust me on this one thing. You do not want to be crystallized in what you are now. You do not. Even if you think you do, you're wrong. You do not. 
because this work attracted you to it. You're listening to this because you are not what you need to be. Not because you are what you need to be, because you are not what you need to be. That's why you're in this work. Now, there are some people who are in this work because they think they are what they need to be, and they just need to share that glory with other people. That's called self-love, self-adoration, self-romance, and that's not what this work is about. That's the antithesis of this work. This is why the lower centers must be purified first, or the impurities will be crystallized and in you, and then you're stuck with the crystallized impurities in you, because when the high-voltage lightning of higher centers strikes, it's just like, well, what is it just like? It's like, well, it's not good. Let's put it that way for now. <coughs> it's like fulgurites. You know what a fulgurite is? A fulgurite is very interesting. Sometimes lightning will strike sand on a beach. And the, the power, the heat, is so hot that the silica actually turns to glass. And it forms these hollow tubes in the shape of lightning bolts. And people go and they dig them up. And they brush them off and here they are. They're called fulgurites. And so this is basically what happens um, now, some people know this. Some people recognize this from the film Sweet Home Alabama, where it was they, with the lightning strikes sand and fulgurites. You'll never see fulgurites like they have in Hollywood because they're not real. And the fulgurites that actually occur in nature, in rocks and in silica sand and things like that, those are very crusty looking. But they're just shapes, but they're very crusty looking on the outside because the outside is sand, and it's just sand that's partially crystallized and so outside it looks like sand but inside it's more crystallized it's stuck together because of the heat so they're not really very pretty and people think of oh, a fulgurite oh that must be beautiful no it's really not it's, it's really pretty ugly it looks like something you'd stick in a tube you know sticking in a bottle to clean it out you know it's not it's not really very pretty at all <clears throat> but that's that's what it's like for us it's like fulgurites you can't alter negative emotions without seeing them first by observing and not identifying with them. If So what is our problem? We're, what is the impurity of the, of the emotional center? Well, the impurity of the emotional center is negative emotions. You can't do anything about negative emotions. You're not going to be able to alter them in any way without first seeing them, without first observing them, without first withdrawing your identification from them, because you're not going to see them as long as you're sitting on them. You, have, you may be able to feel them, but you're not going to be able to see them. You've got to be able to see them to alter them. You have to be able to see that grain of rice in order to carve it into something else. Don't go with negative emotions. I've been saying this for years. Don't go with negative emotions. Don't enjoy them. This is very simple. Don't go with negative emotions. Don't enjoy them. This is a huge task. Well, but, 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 but I couldn't help it. I was just negative, and I, and I didn't know how to stop it. Right. You have to learn how to stop it. And this work gives you specific ways to do that. What happens then if you don't go with them, if you don't enjoy them? They're still there. See, people think negative emotions go away. No, they don't go away. They're still there. But you'll begin to separate from them, making it possible for higher centers to influence you. Something in you becomes pure 
having nothing to do with the false personality. There's something in you starts to form that won't have anything to do with the false personality. It just won't have anything to do with it. It will not go with it. It doesn't like it. It doesn't, it doesn't mix well with it. It just says no to it. It won't go with it. The false personality plays the flute. It won't, it won't dance. The false personality mourns. The first false personality wails, and it won't mourn. And so there's something in you that needs to form, like a fulgurite. But in order for it to be clean, in order for it to be right, you've got to first purify the emotional center of these negative emotions. Big task, but it can be done. It will be washed with a finer taste, clearing the old taste from negative emotions until you acquire taste for the finer and no longer desire the old wine, but actually prefer the new wine. Now, if someone is to give you a glass of new wine or a glass of old wine, you will prefer the old. You will prefer your old associations. You will prefer your old state of consciousness, your ordinary state of consciousness. You will prefer you get a new pair of shoes and you want your old pair of shoes. You want to wear the new pair of shoes, but then they don't feel good. The old pair of shoes feel good, but they don't look good. And so you'll go back to the old pair of shoes, go back to the old pair of shoes. In fact, it's a big problem for people who have to get used to prosthetics and things like that. It, because it's uncomfortable, because there's a break-in process, they quit and they never get through it. Some people do this with dentures. You know, you see them, it's like, but dad, we just bought you new dentures. Why aren't you? I don't like the way they feel. So he goes around and gums his food. And it's like, this is just the same thing. They're not willing to go through the the process, the breaking in process. There's a breaking in process with this work. The unfortunate thing is it never stops. At least there's no end in sight for us. So get used to the process and be willing to do it. In other words, will to go through the process. There's a huge power in willing to do these things. As you become more conscious you find you begin to belong to another destiny. You find that things happen differently. Your real destiny that will lead you to real eye, to real meaning, to real peace, and real happiness. That's what you really want. You may think you want this or that out there, but what you really want is what you think those things are going to give you inside. This work, if you'll do it, will actually really give you those things. That stuff out there will not ever give you those, any, give you those things permanently. You'll have, a per, you'll have a temporary something, but that goes away. And that's what I have to say about that. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.